For us here in the studio today, for everyone down here in the Student Activities Building, I'm Steve Lake saying good night and go blue. When you feel and about to give up. Welcome to another WCBN Sports Production here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Penny, back to pass, blitz is coming, gets it away, and it's caught by Edwards, he streaks across and scores the touchdown! Braylon Edwards into the end zone again, and the Wolverines have put the points on the board. Will await the extra points with the pressure now squarely on the shoulders of the Michigan State. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. I guess the sports people left early today. Uh, my name is Dick Whaley and my uh, partner, Jim Dwyer, has school obligations tonight, so uh, he'll be with us next week. Um, so uh, we'll talk about a variety of uh, issues tonight. So I'm just getting a little uh, organized here. Um about the usual brain damage awards, and uh, as the saying goes, the show must go on. Well, uh, let's give uh, President Bush a brain damage award. Uh, he thought he might get out of uh, Dodge, <laughs> i.e. Washington, uh, without uh, too much trouble, but it seems to have followed him down to Argentina, where uh, his uh, so-called free trade agreement for the uh, Latin American countries uh, didn't do too well, and of course there were protests. And interestingly, uh, it seems that this—I uh, think they're called the Macurador uh, group of uh, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, and Paraguay—are allied with Venezuela in opposing a wider Latin American free trade agreement. Ironically, uh, and this is actually a coincidence. I just finished a book uh, last week uh, by uh, Congressman Sherrod Brown. Uh, he uh, represents a district from northeastern Ohio and has written a pretty interesting little new book called The Myths of Free Trade, Why American Trade Policy Has Failed. And, of course, uh, representing northeastern Ohio, the uh, greater uh, area in there, and I'm not exactly sure if he's... Uh, from Cleveland itself or from Akron, or, or but in that area. 
Um, this uh, is an area very similar to southeast Michigan in terms of the uh, consequence of uh, losing manufacturing jobs. And he's been part of the uh, vocal opponents in Congress of the Free Trade Agreement. Uh, needless to say, he is a Democrat. And in his uh, acknowledgments, by the way, he uh, mentions frequently uh, his uh, admiration and alliance with uh, David Bonnier, who uh, represented Macomb County for so many years uh, in Congress and uh, left Congress a couple of years ago to run for governor of Michigan, uh, losing in the primary to Jennifer Granholm. Bonnier, of course, has been a untiring opponent of so-called NAFTA agreements and so-called free trade agreements. To give you an idea of uh, why um, these Latin American countries that I mentioned, and of course those are the, the, the big countries, Uruguay and Paraguay are not, but Argentina and Brazil obviously are. Um, and uh, Brazil is obviously a competitor of the United States, uh, particularly in agricultural uh, products and are opposed to any agreements with the United States unless farm subsidies are changed here at home. But uh, Sherrod Brown writes, Latin American dictatorships, often supported and often sponsored by the U.S., have been especially friendly to American business interests. A significant aim of U.S. foreign policy in Latin America in the past century has been to make the region safe and secure for large American businesses. Too often... The United States has been on the wrong side of history in the fight for human rights and democracy around the globe, especially in Latin America. Avowed free trader Roderick commented, quote, Latin America, the region that adopted the globalization agenda with the greatest enthusiasm in the 1990s, has suffered rising inequality, enormous volatility, and e economic growth rates significantly below those of the post-World War II decades. So this historical opposition to so-called Yankee imperialism that uh, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela sort of exploits uh, in terms of fiery rhetoric a la Fidel Castro is part of the story. But obviously, big economic problems in Argentina as it relates to IMF austerity measures, which are, uh, of course, the IMF and uh, World Bank are dominated by American corporate interests and banking interests. Just as a footnote, by the way, Paul Wolfowitz is currently president of the World Bank, uh, having received somewhat of a promotion by President Bush. So it's this historical skepticism and animosity towards American so-called trade policy that have um, predominated in many Latin American countries uh, in the last decade or so, we've seen much of this region dem democratically go left. Um, and uh, Hugo Chavez is just maybe the most conspicuous uh, leader of that political uh, milieu. But we're seeing big changes in Latin America uh, in resentment of American um, corporate interests. And it's important to realize, of course, that Free trade agreements essentially are about American corporate interests. Um, as Sherrod Brown notes in his book, The Myths of Free Trade, he talks about the problems with um, the free trade arguments as they're uh, made. 
And he notes uh, in the beginning uh, introduction um, why free trade in America is so unquestionably um, promoted in the media. So I wanted to read this brief uh, study by FAIR, uh, which of course is the Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, a media watchdog group of the left persuasion based in New York. They surveyed the Washington Press Corps in the late 1990s on a wide range of economic issues. The 441 respondents, reporters, and editors alike were asked, uh, excuse me, were, uh, quote, to the right of the public, unquote, on, on almost every major point. The journalists were asked the following about the following issues, protecting Medicare and Social Security, implementing and expanding NAFTA, enacting stricter environmental laws, requiring employers to provide health insurance for their employees, regaining, uh, or excuse me, reining in concentrated corporate power, taxing the wealthy, implementing fast-track negotiating authority, and instituting government-guaranteed medical care. Only on the environment were the journalists, quote, to the left of the general public. Given the statement, quote, too much power is concentrated in the hands of a few large companies, 24% of journalists strongly agreed, while 62% of the public strongly agreed. Perhaps the media's conservative pro-business bias should come as no surprise. The survey showed that two-thirds of the media respondents were male, 89% were white, 95% were college graduates, and 95% had personal incomes of over 50,000. 52%, by the way, earned more than 100,000. Their support of free trade was completely at odds with the general public. 65% of the Washington journalists believed that NAFTA's impact had been positive for the United States, while only 8% thought it had a negative impact. Only 32% of the public believed uh, NAFTA's impact has been positive, while 42% of it thought that the impact had been negative. In the late 1990s, the Washington media supported fast-track trade authority, 71 to 10%. The public opposed it, 35 to 56%. Uh, this is uh, Sherrod Brown using a footnote in, in which he quotes a study uh, based on FAIR's uh, analysis of the discrepancy between the public's position on these NAFTA agreements and the so-called fast-track authority and uh, journalists and the media's presentation of this issue. And I just wanted to highlight one other uh, interesting thing that Brown notes in his uh, book, uh, The Myths of Free Trade. And this is related basically to the... um, And, you know, he talks about the problems of the Maquiladores area in Mexico... He talks about the uh, low environmental standards and a variety of other problems. And in it, interestingly, he goes into the issue of democracy and whether or not free trade is a sort of uh, appendage of promoting democracy. This, of course, was part of George Bush's uh, argument down in Argentina. And it was interesting how um, Bush, in my opinion, sort of allowed Vicente Fox of Mexico to carry the ball for him. Um, Bush, of course, is mired in all-time low uh, approval ratings. He's got, uh, obviously, the ongoing problems in Iraq uh, with no uh, light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. 
he's got personal uh, White House staffing problems with, um, well, let's face it, uh, Libby and, and Karl Rove are still uh, uh, in the uh, crosshairs of Special Prosecutor um, Mr. Fitzgerald. But he, he, he talks a little bit about the numbers. And once again, it's very important to uh, look beneath statistics sometimes to analyze arguments that are being made about certain issues. Uh, we've heard uh, constantly in uh, the public discourse that um, exports um, to Mexico are at an all-time high and, you know, the, the NAFTA, American Free Trade Agreement with Canada and Mexico have worked. Uh, no questions asked sort of things. But Brown points out uh, that the statistics are misleading, and he notes two important aspects of so-called export statistics that the United States keeps uh, as part of the NAFTA uh, analysis. And uh, he quotes, for instance, in 1998, uh, U.S. Trade Representative Charlene Barshevsky told World Trade, a magazine devoted to free trade, that, quote, if we look at uh, 1996 to 97, our exports to Mexico are up 26% in that year. They are at record levels, all-time highs, unquote. In 1999, NAFTA turns five years old, article that neglected to talk about trade deficits. Newsday reported that only the trade uh, between Mexico and the United States has soared from $80 billion a year to pre-NAFTA uh, levels to an estimated $200 billion in uh, 1998. But he then notes that uh, of these statistics, uh, a huge chunk of the um, so-called exports to Mexico are actually uh, building components in which uh, multinational corporations build plants in Mexico. So when they buy raw materials from American companies to build a factory, um, particularly in the Maquiladori region, uh, they count that as an export, even though the plant is ultimately built in Mexico and then permanently displaces American workers. Uh, and then Brown goes on to note that these Mexican workers make uh, very little money and are, as consumers, unable to buy American products and that they work uh, under relaxed environmental and labor uh, conditions. And, uh, of course, many... Uh, Environmental regulations, just for example, in Mexico, uh, certain toxic uh, chemicals are allowed to be used in Mexican production that wouldn't be allowed to use here in America. And, of course, there's, there's dumping going on. There's all sorts of shenanigans that these corporations are getting away with as part of the so-called free trade agreement. That's one component. Then the other issue are, as he puts it, industrial tourists. These are components that are exported to Mexico for a couple of days as parts and then re-imported uh, to the United States a few days later. Um, so one critic, Harley Shaken, uh, who came up with this term industrial tourists, writes, uh, these, uh, Brown writes these, quote, industrial tourists are often auto parts. For example, they stay in Mexico about as long as a San Diego teenager visiting Tijuana. And it's not just manufactured component, components that make uh, the trip south. Quote, only 2% of the raw materials purchased by Dore plants in 97 came from Mexican suppliers. Most came from the United States. 
If a plant in Brownsville, Texas moves to Matamores, Mexico, its U.S. suppliers contribute to U.S. exports to Mexico. This revolving door, quote, exports have accounted for the entire export increase for the United States. He writes, in 1993, the year before NAFTA went into effect, the U.S. sold to Mexico $27 billion in final export goods that were actually consumed in Mexico. The next year, the uh, number increased to $28.5 billion. In 95, it dropped to $19.7 billion, and then it climbed to $25.9 billion. More telling, perhaps, were temporary exports, those components that directly replace American jobs. They were the biggest gainers from $18 billion in 93 to $41 billion in 96. More concisely in 93, 60% of U.S. exports to Mexico were final exports. In 96, only 38% were. By 2002, the share of final exports was up, but still only half of all exports to Mexico. Only 32% of our imports from Mexico were not from firms operating in Mexico. Um, and, of course, we do export, uh, import uh, oil from Mexico. That is a huge component of the trade deficit, so to speak. Brown goes on to conclude that our trade balance with Mexico, uh, which was $1.7 billion surplus in 93, went into deficit the first year of NAFTA in 93 and ballooned to 14.7 in 98, $17 billion in 2000, $37 billion in 2002, and $46.6 billion in 2003. Our trade deficit with Canada jumped to 18.5 billion in 98, 19 billion in 2000, 48 billion in 2002, and 54.4 billion in 2003. Sherrod Brown, of course, is talking, uh, you know, his constituents are auto, uh, or one uh, constituency, one major constituency of his congressional district, would be very analogous to John Dingles here in uh, southeast Michigan or uh, other uh, Southeast Michigan uh, companies, because we've heard a lot of reports in the last couple of weeks about the demise of um, AC Delco and Delphi. Uh, And they, of course, are a GM subsidiary that was spun off. They make car components. They've recently filed for bankruptcy. And uh, there will be devastating uh, job losses here in the United States, uh, particularly regionally, uh, if this company um, is not uh, allowed to continue in business. On the other hand, if they are allowed to continue in in business under these bankruptcy um, um, plans that that have been publicized, we're talking about... uh, Workers here in America losing about half their wage and benefit uh, packages. You know, wages are going to go from $27 an hour to 10 to 14 an hour. And this is uh, going to have a devastating impact both on in uh, northeast Ohio, uh, where Brown uh, is, is, is a congressman, here in southeast Michigan. And we've seen uh, very ominous reports about the impact of the ultimate demise of AC. Uh, the, the Delphi uh, Corporation, um, which I think AC Delco is part of that uh, company. And this is what he's talking about in terms of job losses. He notes, of course, that uh, over 100,000 
related auto jobs have been lost since Bush has been president. And this is part of this so-called NAFTA uh, nonsense that we hear in the public. And then, of course, he goes on to note that while it's good that workers in Latin America get jobs, they're paid uh, so little money. And the actual beneficiaries of these uh, deals turn out to be corporate uh, executives that make a huge uh, increases in salaries. And as he notes, there's a lot of phony statistics being floated around showing how these free trade agreements have benefited the United States. Later in the week, by the way, we'll see some updated monthly trade deficit statistics. And uh, once again, we're talking about $60 billion a month. We're talking about the biggest trade deficit in American history just this year. And uh, it's pretty scary stuff. Meanwhile, of course, the president is uh, f- uh, trying to uh, shield uh, his administration from any further questions about new allegations regarding uh, secret jails uh, that apparently the CIA has set up in countries uh, that are part of the so-called Coalition of the Willing. Uh, they've now been identified as Poland and Romania. Uh, this is uh, classic stuff. These are so-called part of the gulag archipelago of uh, the communist system in Eastern Europe in which uh, the CIA is uh, apparently uh, keeping prisoners uh, in uh, violation of international law in which torture is is taking place. And now uh, it's been noted uh, in the media that the European Union said it will investigate uh, reports that the CIA set up secret jails in Eastern Europe. Um, and the commission spokesman said, quote, we have to find out exactly what's happening. We have all heard about this then. We have to see if it's confirmed, uh, a spokesman said, because if the prison secret prisons existed, they would violate EU human rights rules. Uh, President Bush's response to this today uh, was classic uh, cowboy nonsense. There's an enemy that lurks. It plots, it plans. Blah, blah. We will, you know, be untiring in the war on terror. That's Bush's response to uh, these embarrassing reports uh, that have been pretty much produced by the Washington Post and obviously leaked uh, to further downgrade the credibility of the current administration. Meanwhile... Uh, Just the other day, we have confirmation of something that I talked a little bit about a couple of weeks ago regarding um, how the Bush administration yet again uh, used discredited, quote, intelligence information to make the public case for war. Frontline, a couple of weeks ago, pointed out that uh, there had been a al-Qaeda defector that had been, quote, tortured in a foreign country, and they were... Uh, elliptically identifying Egypt as that country. It would actually be ironic if it turned out to be Syria. But in any event, it turns out that the DIA has now uh, declassified a document that, interestingly, Senator Carl Levin of Michigan, who's on the Intelligence Committee, uh, has uh, made available to the to, to the uh, media regarding how uh, pre-war intelligence was misused by the Bush administration. And this is part of this shutdown of the Senate, you know, this little theatrical thing that occurred last week involving uh, Senator Harry Reid. Um, 
This is part of this so-called Phase 2 investigation that Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas, Republican, uh, claims uh, we're working on this and we had the meeting scheduled, and et cetera, et cetera. But it seems more likely that uh, continuing cover-ups in Washington were actually underway. Douglas Gell reports uh, from yesterday's uh, New York Times, a top member of al-Qaeda in American custody was identified as a likely fabricator months before the Bush administration began to use his statements as the foundation for its claims that Iraq trained al-Qaeda members to use biological and chemical weapons, according to a newly declassified Defense Intelligence Agency document. The document, an intelligence report from February 2002, said that it was probably the prisoner uh, Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, quote, was intentionally misleading the debriefers in making claims about Iraqi al-Qaeda work with illicit weapons. Um, Frontline, by the way, reported that this al-Libi was captured uh, in Pakistan at the end of 2002, uh, then transferred uh, presumably to Egypt where he was tortured, and that these uh, revelations under torture... um, were part of the evidence. Now, I mean, this is all just absolutely mind-boggling. Part of the evidence that the Bush administration used to justify the Iraqi war. I mean, it doesn't get any more convoluted than this. Uh, We're talking about violations of international law in terms of the United States uh, using this concept of rendition to torture a, quote, terrorist, unquote, indeed, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. His exact status in al-Qaeda is unclear. Uh, but no doubt, uh, for the tenth time, he was uh, probably labeled as the number three man in al-Qaeda. Uh, Bush and Cheney have made that assertion, I think, ten times at this point. And I've lost track of how many times the number three man in al-Qaeda has been apprehended by the American government. But needless to say... Um, He was apparently captured at the end of 2001 uh, as part of the Afghan war and recanted his claims in January 2004 that prompted the CIA month letter to recall all intelligence reports based on his statements. A fact recorded in a footnote to the uh, 9-11 commission. And, uh, yeah, this is just amazing because it goes on to note that uh, Mr. Leiby, and I'm quoting from Doug Geale here again, was not alone among intelligence sources later to determine having fabricated accounts. Among others was an Iraqi exile whose code name was Curveball. Uh, and he was the primary source for what proved to be false information about Iraqi uh, mobile biological weapons labs. Uh, it then goes on to note um, the report issued by the Senate Intelligence Committee in July 2004 questioned whether some of, the, some of these versions of the intelligence report prepared by the CIA in late 2002 and early 2003 raised sufficient questions about the reliability of Mr. Libby's claims. But neither that report nor the one issued by the 9-11 Commission, made any reference to the existence of the earlier, more skeptical 2002 report by the DIA. So, yeah, this is all just fascinating uh, stuff. Um, I heard David Brooks 
on uh, the uh, Lehrer News Hour show on Friday claim that people that are trying to claim that uh, the, the Bush administration lied about the uh, you know the intelligence uh, regarding the war are part of a kind of an Oliver Stone McCarthy uh, group you know and of course this is a reference to Joe McCarthy and this is all sort of conspiratorial nonsense. Well, the evidence just keeps coming in that there is uh, a plenty of, uh, shall we say, conspiracy theory involved here. Uh, the evidence is actually overwhelming. There's actually nothing that shows that the Bush administration honestly took intelligence and used it uh, in any sort of uh, objective way uh, to uh, make the case for war. Instead, they used constant discredited information to make the case for war to the American public. Interestingly, this Mr. Libby document, uh, Mr. Powell, it turns out, relied heavily on accounts provided by Mr. Libby for his speech to the United Nations Security Council on February 5th of 2003, saying that he was tracing, quote, the story of how a senior terrorist operative telling how Iraq provided training in these weapons to al-Qaeda, unquote. This is amazing. And at the time of Mr. Powell's speech, an unclassified statement by the CIA described the reporting now known as to have been coming from Mr. Libby as, quote, credible, unquote. In addition, Mr. Bush was the one in a major speech in Cincinnati in 2002 said, quote, we've learned that Iraq has trained al Qaeda members in bomb making and poisons and gases, unquote. We now know that these speeches that were made publicly by the Secretary of State and the President of the United States to bamboozle the public and Congress, because it's important to remember that Bush's October 2007 speech preceded uh, Congress's vote to authorize, quote, the use of force in Iraq. Uh, that resolution, by the way, did not authorize the use of force. It authorized the President to come back to Congress uh, with a re credible report that um, Iraq was in significant violation.